Well, we are gonna we are gonna jump into though really um, an amazing passage of scripture, which honestly will tie in so well to what you shared, because it centers on the sacrifice of Christ, and he's been making this argument um, throughout Hebrews. He's trying to talk to Jews and trying to explain to them, which is hard for them to grasp, that Jesus is is a better high priest because they were so used to what the high priest uh, was. He's better has a better uh, covenant because of the old covenant that they were all under, and he's also brought a better sacrifice. And we're really um, into the, the meat of the better sacrifice uh, argument here. And so this is really a part two uh, of where we began last week. Uh, if you um, are in Hebrews chapter 9, just look back at verse 15, because that's where really the subject was really introduced or the transition was happening. He says, for this reason... Speaking of Jesus, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. There's that word, by means of death. Jesus, through his death, was able to bring in this new covenant, and it was for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And really, the author was trying to establish here that death was a necessary thing. Why, why were these things acquired only by a means of death? Why are we always talking about the death of Jesus? Why was this so important? Well, first he addressed the idea of this inheritance that was mentioned in verse 15. And it was a great little illustration. If you were here, well, it was two weeks ago, wasn't it? Is that he mentions the last will and testament. Okay, when you are promised something in someone's last will and testament, when do you receive what's been promised to you? Only when the testator dies, right? The one who has authored that will. And Jesus has promised eternal inheritance, but we don't get that until he dies. Death was necessary that you and I might receive the inheritance. And we looked at that. You already have a deposit of that inheritance. It's in you. It's called the Holy Spirit. That's the down payment, if you could say it that way. But the second thing he addressed was that without blood, there's no forgiveness. When you read the Old Testament, probably you're overcome by all the blood everywhere. There's just so much blood. And when you look at verse 18 of chapter 9, he says, Therefore, not even the first covenant covenant was dedicated without blood. He brings that to their attention. You're obsessed with the Old Covenant, but look at that covenant. That covenant was dedicated with blood. And as the author normally does, he looks at Old Testament passages to support what he's saying. And he looked at Exodus 24, and we looked it up. And when you read through Exodus 24, it's brutal. Moses is taking blood, and he's putting on the basins, and he's putting on the book that he's reading from. He's even splattering on the people. Aren't you grateful today, people, that we don't have to do that? We don't have to splatter you with blood? But blood was all over the place in the Old Testament. Why? Well, two reasons. God was really trying to communicate that sin is a serious thing. We don't take it serious today. Just look at the world. But he was trying to communicate to the people, it's serious. But also to demonstrate sin costs something. It is is a pricey thing. He says in verse 22 there that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. It requires blood. So so why did Jesus have to die? Why, Why his blood? That's what he got to in verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. His whole point has been that all of the Old Testament, 
all the things that we see in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the high priest, and the robes, and all those things, all those things are copies or even shadows of what is to come. And so if those things could be purified with just the blood of an animal, then how much more would the eternal things, the real things, the reality, need to be purified with a better sacrifice than the blood of an animal? Do you see his point there? So he went on to, couple, to hit a couple other points through those verses, and we looked at those two weeks ago, that because Jesus came and died, and he provided then a, a permanent opening to God, permanent access to God, a, a permanent forgiveness of sins. It was temporary in the Old Testament, and permanent salvation. If you remember back to chapter 9 in verse 11, he said, Christ came as high priest of the good things to come. There's good things to come. Jesus came as that high priest. And for all of these things to be true then, what he's saying is that that must mean that that we have been perfected. Something has had to have changed. We, We cannot access God as imperfect beings. God is a holy being. We just sang a whole bunch of songs. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. That means he's perfect. The Bible says because he's holy, he can't even look upon sin. So how do imperfect, sinful people have access to a perfect, sinless God? That's the question. We can't dwell with him forever. How could that possibly be? We would have to have our sins well and truly done away with. We need to be perfected. And that's the meat of what he's getting to today. It's the problem of imperfection that he wants to address. We're going to cover a lengthy section. We're looking at chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. So let me just read through it to begin with, and then we'll dive into it. Hebrews chapter 10. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. And then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this, after he said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. And then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Let's pray. 
God, we thank you for your word to us today, and we know, Lord, this is a a very important section of Scripture. We pray that your Spirit would be with us to guide us into truth, Lord, that we might understand the deep and wonderful truths that are being um, told us here today, Lord. Be with us, guide us into the truths of this passage. We pray for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first, he's addressing the problem that I mentioned, the problem of imperfection. If we're imperfect people, how can we reach God? How can we have access to God? So some of this will be somewhat repetitive, but he's going to get into deeper things with this. So he says in verse 1, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. There's a couple of problems actually mentioned here. The first problem is that the law was only a shadow. It's an, it's an outline, a shadow. It, it portrays something that's real, doesn't it? It portrays something that's real, but it is not real in itself. That's what a shadow is, unless, of course, you've watched Peter Pan, and in Peter Pan, his shadow is real, isn't it? Just, he's trying to capture his shadow, but that's not reality. That's fiction. In reality, your shadow follows you. Your shadow imitates you. Your shadow is simply the outline of you, but it's not you. Now, shadow and image are both used here in this passage. Shadow and image are also used in a very well-known passage in Colossians. And I want to show it to you because I think it helps us understand the difference between the two. Shadow is just uh, skiad. It means it's referring here to the Old Testament things, the rituals and the practices, okay? And in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 17, he uses that word shadow. It says, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come. But the substance is of Christ. Everything he mentions there, that's all Old Testament stuff. The food had to be a certain way, didn't it? The drink had to be a certain way. The the festivals that you had to go to, the Sabbaths that you had to observe, he says all those things, they were just a shadow of things that would come, of the reality. And then he tells us the answer. Well, then what is the reality? The substance is of Christ. Christ is the reality. Christ is the high priest, remember, of the good things to come. We looked at that uh, back in uh, chapter 9. In Christ, then, we have the reality. There's real forgiveness, real access to God, real, uh, real peace. But that law, that was only a shadow. And, and verse 1 says, it was the law that was a shadow of the good things to come, but not the very image of the things. Image is icon, is where we get icon from. Okay, an icon, that's a, that's a likeness, that's a, a figure. And, and, and that is referring to the reality. I, uh, Colossians 1.15 uses that word image as well. Speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. You see, Jesus himself is the figure. He is the likeness of God. Aren't you glad Jesus isn't a shadow? Right? No, no, no. He's the icon. He's the image. He's the likeness. He's the expressed image, Scripture tells us. But the law, note what he's saying, was not the very image. It was only a shadow. So what that means is it could never, ever, ever, ever make those who approach perfect. That's what he's saying. What can a shadow actually do for you? Well, nothing. It doesn't do anything for me. Maybe it gives me a little shade, right? But it doesn't do you anything. It cannot make those who approach perfect, even though the sacrifices were offered continually year after year. 
Even the repetition of that, that still didn't do anything. Why? Because it's still only a shadow. That's his whole point. Now, this idea of, of perfection being perfected, making those who approach perfect, is an idea that he's been messing with quite a bit. Um, back in chapter 7, you might remember, he talked about the uh, Levitical priesthood. He said if perfection could be reached under the old Levitical uh, priesthood, then what reason would we have a need of uh, another priest that would come? And remember that priest was Jesus prophesied in the Old Testament of the Melchizedekian priesthood. He said, what, what, why would we need another priest? And if the law made nothing perfect, why do we need another law? It all has to do with access to God. It all has to do with that. The Old Testament law and the sacrifices never gave anybody true access to God. In fact, go back to chapter 9, verse 9, and just look at it. Speaking of this and the, and the old tabernacle and the old system, he says, it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the sacrifice perfect in regard to conscience. In regard to your conscience, he's referring to the final removal of guilt. They offered those sacrifices and offerings, but they left knowing they'd be back there again with more sacrifices. You never got rid of the guilt. You always knew, I'm a sinner, and I'm going to come and have to bring something again. And then next year with the Day of Atonement, I'm going to have to bring a sacrifice again. They were really never, never free from that. And in fact, look at verse 2. In our passage, verse 10, he says, For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of of sins. Yes, if the Old Testament sacrifices did indeed accomplish perfection, well, then he says two things would have happened. One, the sacrifices would have ended. If you walked up and brought that sacrifice and it really made you perfect, then there would be no more sacrifice. You're good. You're done. Everything's done. But you had to come back again. And secondly, you would have left with a clean conscience. Once purified or cleansed, that's what that means. If you were truly cleansed, it says they would have ceased to be conscious of any sin. That's the idea there. In fact, that word consciousness in the Greek is sunaidesis, and it is the same word that's been translated in our passages, conscience. Uh, we've looked at it in chapter 9, uh, verse 9, and in chapter 9, verse 14, uh, speaking of our conscience being cleansed. And even in the future, it's going to be brought up again. Look at verse 22 of chapter 10. This is a little spoiler alert. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Uh, Sorry, I'm verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. You see where he's going with this because it's kind of going ahead of the argument. We can draw near because our hearts have been sprinkled from an evil conscience. See, your conscience is a built-in mechanism that you have that operates much like pain. Aren't you actually glad that you have the pain mechanism? I am. Your pain alerts you to the fact that something's happening to your body that's not right. When you touch a pan that's been sitting on the hob and it's been on and you start to feel the heat, it's telling you, like, remove your hand (laughs) because it's going to burn off if you keep it there. If you had no pain sensor, you would just go until your flesh was gone, wouldn't you? Pain alerts you to the fact that something's wrong physically. Your conscience is much the same way. It alerts you to the fact that something's wrong morally or spiritually. It's saying, this is not right. You need to change course. There's something wrong here. And so that's the idea. Rather than be free from any consciousness of sins in the Old Testament, 
What the sacrifices did was the opposite. It only reminded them that they were sinners every single year. Look at verse 3. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Ultimately, the reason for the, the insufficiency of the Old Testament law was the sacrifices themselves. It was the blood of animals. And the blood of bulls and goats, notice what it says, could never take away sins. In fact, it says it was impossible. The author of Hebrews likes to use that uh, word, donutatus. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's impossible. It's without strength. It's powerless. All the time we've seen that. You remember earlier in chapter 6, it talked about those who have received the heavenly gift, but if they fall away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. We were told in chapter 6, it's impossible for God to lie. And we'll see in chapter 11 that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Here, it's absolutely impossible. There's no power in the blood of an animal. There's nothing in it. It has no ability to forgive your sins. And here's the thing. The people knew that. I don't know if you're aware of this, but it's all through the Old Testament. People knew that. You might remember King David. He wrote this psalm in Psalm 51, verses 16 to 17. Speaking to God, he says, For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. You see, David understood what was really at the heart of this thing, the heart. You see, they just became routine. The sacrifices became a routine. People brought these things as as an act Okay, God wants us to do that, but without an obedient heart, without a willing heart, without a contrite heart. And so what happened that even the temporary covering of sin, that's what those were meant to do, is just cover sin temporarily, even that was lost. Even that was not accomplished because it lost its symbolic value. You say, well, what do you mean? You mean their, their sins weren't temporarily covered? Well, God judged them, didn't he? He sent the Assyrians to take them to captivity. He sent the Babylonians to take them to captivity. Even temporarily, the covering was lost to many of them because they failed to do that in real obedience. It just became a routine thing. Remember, even King Saul thought this way. He was given a a direct commandment by God, and he disobeyed, but then he went and made a sacrifice. And so Samuel the prophet had to go to him and and tell him, has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and, and obeying him? He says, it's, it's better to uh, obey. That's better than a sacrifice. See, God didn't want sacrifices if they were offered in disobedience, if they were offered reluctantly. What is that called, by the way? Hypocrisy. That's what that is. And so the nation of Israel just had turned into a, a whole nation of, of hypocrites. And so God judged them severely. But he warned them about it over and over again. Who did God use to warn his people often in the Old Testament? Prophets, right? Prophets were God's messengers, bringing a message from God to the people. I'm going to give you some prophets. I want you to look at their messages. Here's Isaiah, well-known prophet, chapter 1, verse 11 to 13. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. That's strange, isn't it? 
Isn't it God that set up the whole Old Testament economy? The law and the sacrifices? Yes. But it had become repulsive to him. And so he sent messengers to say, stop bringing the sacrifices. I don't want any more. I'm sick of it. He used Hosea as well. Hosea 6.6, 6, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of, uh, knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. You're missing what I really want out of this. I want a relationship. I want you to know me. In fact, he was saying, you don't care about me. You don't want a relationship with me. He used the prophet Amos 5.21. I hate, I despise your feast days, and I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings in your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments, but let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. You see, it was improper worship. He didn't like any aspect of their worship. He, I don't want the offerings. I don't even want the songs. Can we do that today? Can we come to God reluctantly? Can we come to God with hearts that aren't really prepared to worship him? We can. Church is full of hypocrites. We can come and put on a face and put all these things in front and say, oh, I am worshiping you, God, but he knows the heart. He says, I hate it. I don't even want it. Don't sing a song if you don't mean it. He wants our hearts, folks. You can sit in chairs on Sundays for years, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, but he's never had your heart. Then it means absolutely nothing. He says things like, I hate, I despise, I don't want it. Probably the most well-known comment comes from the prophet Micah. In Micah chapter 6, verse 6, he says, with what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before the high God. Shall I come before him with, with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Do you see what he does there? It's this progression. I could bring a goat. Oh, I could bring lots of them. I can bring 10,000 rivers of oil. I can go the extreme. I can offer my own child. Aren't I holy? I've given my own child to God. And he says, God doesn't want any of that. He says, what he wants is that you would do justly, that you would love a mercy, and you would walk humbly with God. You can only do that if you know him. You see, it was never about the sacrifice, folks. It was always about the heart, and he didn't have the heart of his people. And so the point he's making here is that the animal sacrifices were never, ever going to provide what was truly needed. You would always have the problem of imperfection. So what was the solution for imperfection? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's what we come to in verse 5. Here's the solution. Therefore, when he came into the world, and by the way, Who's the he that came into the world? Jesus. We've just transitioned here to the solution. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. 
as the author of Hebrews often does, because he's talking to Jewish uh, folks, he gives them an Old Testament passage to, to back up what he's saying. This is Psalm chapter 40, verses 6 to 8. And in the psalm, in fact, you go ahead and turn there, but keep your finger in Hebrews. We're going to come back to it. But in Psalm chapter 40, when you read through it, it's clearly the words of David. It's from David. It's about David. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you hopefully have noticed this at this point, that you often read passages from someone like David. But suddenly it begins to change and you go, I don't think he's talking about David anymore. I think he's talking about somebody else. Many times in Scripture, we see an immediate person or a subject and then a different one. We see it all the time. In Psalm 40, it's clearly about David. But this New Testament author of Hebrews, mind you, he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as well, attributes the words of David to the pre-incarnate Christ. He says that these were Jesus' words before he ever came to earth. And so what you have here, and this is amazing, it's a divine conversation between God the Son and God the Father, which when you would have read Psalm 40, maybe you never saw that. But the author of Hebrews says, oh, that's that's what this is about. Look to to Psalm 40. Let's read it um, the way it's written there. It's verses 6 to 8. Notice what it says. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burn offering and sin offering you did not require. And then I said, behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. That's the actual psalm there. Notice there's a different uh, phrase there uh, in verse 6 than what we have in our passage, and maybe you notice that. He put, my ears you have opened. Do you notice that there? If you go back to our passage in Hebrews, the quote's a little bit different. He says, but a body you have prepared for me. Now that phrase about the ears in the literal Uh, Hebrew, it is ears you have dug for me, which I actually like. It's a picture of the creation of man and God forming man. He's like, you actually dug out the canal of the ear for me. But what the author is trying to say here is something bigger. He, he, He wants to say, well, obviously the ear was made on man, but the ear didn't just float around. He, he, he put it on a body. <laughs> so he's saying it was a whole body that was prepared. Now, the reason um, that he's bringing this up is because the subject uh, is the Old Testament sacrifices. Remember this, okay? And God did not desire those sacrifices. Sacrifice and offering, you didn't desire. He had no pleasure in those sacrifices. And God, in fact, could never be fully satisfied with the blood of animals. Why? They were shadow, remember? They're shadow. But they pointed to the substance, the reality, which was Christ. So Jesus, picture this, is standing in the heavens, and he says to God the Father, because of those imperfect sacrifices that you never take pleasure in, that you don't really desire, a body you have prepared for me. Is that not an amazing picture? This is what has happened. Those sacrifices will never cover the sins of man. We're in deep, deep trouble. You will never have forgiveness of sins from animals. But a body you prepare for me. Jesus says, I'm going. I'm the one. I am the sacrifice. That was the plan all along, that Jesus would become a man. That was what was promised in the garden when sin entered the world for the first time. Do you remember what happened? God came in and he had words with Adam and he had words with Eve, and then he had words with the serpent, didn't he? 
And this is what he said in Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. See, Jesus is the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman. Now, not the seed of a man. It's the man that has the seed, but he would be the seed of the woman. He would come from woman, but not from man. He would be the offspring of a woman. This is the miracle of the virgin birth. This is Jesus that would be born into the world as a man, but he would not come from man. In addition, notice what he says. It's, I, you have prepared a body for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you you had no pleasure. But verse 7, but behold, I have come. You see, this is an act of obedience. Jesus says, I have come to you. Notice the, the, the bit in the middle, though. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. In verse 7 there, do you see that? In the volume of the book, what, what, what book would you think he's referring to? Well, it's the Old Testament. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. Jesus is all through the Old Testament. What the, the author is referring to here is Jesus in the heavens. Before he ever came to earth as Jesus, pre-incarnate, God. But the Old Testament is full of Jesus. It's full of messianic prophecies, which foretold the death of Jesus. That's what he's saying. You prepared a body for me, and it's written, you've written about it. It's in the volume of the book. In fact, turn to Isaiah 53. It's probably the one I think of most when I think of uh, messianic psalms, or messianic, sorry, uh, scripture. This is not a psalm. It's a, a, a prophet. It's Isaiah 53. But this one always immediately comes to mind when I, when I think about scripture in the Old Testament that talks about Jesus that would come to die, that body that was prepared. In Isaiah 53, uh, just starting in verse 4, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Notice it's all about sin. It's all about sin being placed upon Jesus. He's smitten by God and afflicted. Why? Because he has our transgressions. He has our iniquities. It's been laid upon him. And in verse 10, when you skip ahead, it tells us this. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul, and here it is, an offering for sin. You see, the Jews didn't kill Jesus. The Romans didn't kill Jesus. God killed Jesus because it was God's plan all along. In the heavens, in the heavens, Jesus says, I know you prepared a body for me. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to obey Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. It's written about me all through the Old Testament. You've been prophesying it. You've been been saying this is what's going to happen. I've come to do your will. You know, when Jesus came to earth, he constantly affirmed that his mission on earth was to do the will of God. Do you remember that? Over and over again, particularly in, in the book of John. My food is to do the will of God, he said. I've come down from heaven, he says, but not to do my own will, but to do the will of God. 
And he says, the world may know that I love the Father because he gave me commandment and I do it. See, Jesus gave us the example of what kind of sacrifice God really wanted. Obedience, a willing heart. And Jesus came forward and says, I see it's not happening. As you don't delight in sacrifices, you don't delight in burnt offerings, but a body you prepare for me. So I'm going to come. Behold, I've come to do your will, O God. One commentator said this, that Jesus' joyous resolve to obediently do God's will is the essence of the true sacrifice and worship that God desires. Jesus does what God desired from every worshiper in the Old Covenant. God did not want animal sacrifices. What he wanted and what he still wants is obedience. That is the only sacrifice that is acceptable to God. And the will of God was that Jesus be the ultimate sacrifice, a sacrifice that he would be pleased with. And what's great about this passage in Hebrews is that the author actually offers his own explanation for using Psalm chapter 40. And he begins in verse 8. Look what he says. He kind of puts everything together, together here. He says, previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Now, this is really important here. He says, the sacrifices that God didn't desire, didn't have pleasure in, they were all, they were all offered according to the law. God didn't desire them. He didn't take pleasure in them, but that didn't mean that they were contrary to his will. They were offered according to his will. God had established those things. That's, that's all the boring stuff you're always flipping through in the beginning of the Bible. You're like, oh, more offerings, more commandments about offerings, commandments about sacrificing this thing. Because God was saying, this is what you're going to need to do is according to his will. But why did he make it so specific? Why was there so much? He was trying to teach the people something. He wanted them to learn that they were sinful. And that God hates sin. You're sinful people. And I hate sin. I'm a holy God. And sin leads to death. It requires blood. And so what I'm going to do for you is I'm going to give you the blood. You can use the animals of the blood. And you can temporarily cover your, of your sins. But it's going to need atoning for. And one day I'm going to send the one that will atone for your sins once and for all. God delighted in those whose hearts were contrite and obedient in the Old Testament. There were those people. But God delights in that today as well. But those sacrifices, they were never, never permanent because the blood of an animal could never atone for the sins of man, and nor did it have the ability to change hearts. But that's why Jesus came. Verse 9, he says, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. See, the people in the Old Testament never accomplished God's will, not through that old covenant, but Jesus came to do the will of God. So to do that, he's taking away the first that he might establish the second. First and second what? Covenants. You could not have two existing contradictory covenants at the same time. The old one, the first, had to be removed in order for the new one, the second, to be established. And with the second, the problem of imperfection that has finally been dealt with. There's not a problem of imperfection anymore. And that's where we get the results of perfection. Perfection has come. Finally, in verse 10, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
What are the results of perfection? A few points I'm going to give you here. The first is mentioned right here in verse 10. It's sanctification. Sanctification, hagiazo, it's the same word we've looked at before in Corinthians. We talked about uh, being set apart. The word that we get saints from, we are saints in him. It just means set apart. And it speaks of our position. Okay, positionally before God, we're set apart for him. We're sanctified. And that is the will of God for you. Did you know that? That God's will for you is that you be sanctified. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, he says it. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. See, sanctification is used here much the way Paul uses justification. Justification is a legal term. You're standing in God's holy court. Are you guilty or not guilty? But he justifies us. He says you're not guilty, even though we know we are. That's justification. But sanctification is where he places us as a result of that justification. You're now set apart for me. Why? Because I just said you're not guilty. Because your sins have been paid for by somebody else. Amazing. These are the truths of the gospel. And when we understand them, we are humbled. There's where the humble heart comes, the contrite heart. I have nothing good in me. I know it. Just ask Jody. (laughs) Right? But God has forgiven me of my sins and set me apart. I am sanctified positionally because of one act in one moment. Jesus made it possible for us to be permanently sanctified, secure. How can we be sure that we're permanently sanctified? How do you know that? Well, look at verses 11 to 13. He goes back to the old covenant. Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, speaking of Jesus, after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. And from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. How can I be sure that I'm permanently sanctified? Well, the old priests, they had to do the sacrifices all the time. You were always going back to the temple, bring another animal, and they did it daily, and they did it year after year. But Jesus did it once, and then he sat down. I know we've made this point several times, but there were no seats in the temple. The work of the priest was never done, but when Jesus was done, he sat down because his work was done. Yes, he does something for us still. He intercedes for us. We, we talked about that. But here we're told that he is now just waiting. He's waiting till his enemies are under his feet. Now, that's a reference to Psalm 110, verse 1. That was quoted back in Hebrews 1 many, many months ago. We looked at that. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13, he wrote this. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Remember, he was making the argument that Jesus is better than angels. In the Jewish mind, angels are pretty high. And so he said, well, Jesus is even higher than angels. He said, did, did God ever say that to an angel? Sit at my right hand till I make all your enemies your footstool. No, he didn't. But who did he say it to? Jesus, his son. And so Jesus is to sit to the side, the right hand of the father, till all his enemies are made his footstool. Now, let me ask you a question. Has Jesus already conquered his enemies or is he waiting to conquer them? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Because there's the already and the not yet, isn't there, of all through scripture. Can I just tell you that he's already conquered his enemies? It's done. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, we're told he conquered the devil. Inasmuch then as the children have partakers of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death 
he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus died on that cross, and by dying on that cross and rising from the dead, he destroyed the power of death that the devil wields, and therefore destroyed the devil. The devil has no power. Jesus said, I've, I've conquered and overcome the world. In fact, he's also overcome the demons and the rulers of this world, the evil rulers of this world. It's a demonized world. But in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, it says that he's disarmed the principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them. That word principality is often used of the spiritual realm, the powers in the spiritual realm. So those powers and the powers that exist here on earth, they've been disarmed. He's overcome the world. And so his, his enemies have been conquered. Then what is Jesus waiting to do? What does it mean that his enemies are going to be under his footstool? It means this, that there's going to be a moment when all of his enemies will declare him Lord. He's conquered them, but they're still raising the fist. There's going to be a time where they're going to declare him Lord. In Philippians 2.10, and we actually sang a song about this today. It says this, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth. Do you see that? Every knee. He wants to cover all the realms. In heaven, on earth, under the earth, he says. Every knee is going to bow. And my question to you today is this. Have you declared him Lord? Have you bowed the knee to him? Because here's the truth is that every I just want you to see that word. Every knee will bow. And so you have a choice. You can bow to him as his enemy. You'll be made to bow. You'll be forced to bow. Or you can bow to him as his child. The choice is yours. He will make, make his enemies his footstool, and he'll be right to do so because he is Lord of Lord and King of Kings. But wouldn't it be so much greater? to willingly and lovingly bow the knee to Christ. Oh, I love you. Thank you for ruling me. You heard a wonderful testimony of someone who tried to rule themselves. Can I just tell you? It will never, ever work. When self rules the heart, then you rule yourself into the grave and into judgment. But Christ needs to rule the heart. Christ did a wonderful work in your life. Have you declared him Lord? As, as his child, we're promised this, that we then, if we've declared him Lord, we've been perfected forever, it says. Forever. Incredible. Look at verse 14. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Gosh, all those years of all these sacrifices and nobody ever left perfected. They always left guilty. They always reminded of that there are sinners. But Jesus came and offered one sacrifice so that you don't have to feel guilty, so that you don't have to be reminded of your sin. My sin's been forgiven. He says, not only positionally now are you sanctified, but notice what it says, that also you perfected forever those who are being sanctified. See, sanctification is also a, a practical thing. We are all being sanctified. Again, you know, I am not a perfect human being. I'm going to stumble. I'm going to fail. I will sin. I will have to confess those sins to my Lord, and he's faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. But positionally, I never lose my position. I'm sanctified in him, but also I'm being sanctified, being made holy. But did you notice that he says, but you've been perfected forever. So in God's mind, it's as good as done. It's a sure thing. 
He has perfected us. The final removal of guilt, that's been accomplished, and therefore we have full access to God. Salvation is complete. Incredible. Incredible. That's sanctification. Another thing we get is empowerment. Empowerment. Look at verses 15 to 16. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. This is great. The Holy Spirit testifies to you something else, that, to, that perfection has come, and it's come in the new covenant. The Holy Spirit testifies. Well, how does the Holy Spirit testify? Then he quotes Jeremiah 31, obviously written by the Holy Spirit. Jeremiah 31 is a lengthy passage that he quoted back in chapter 8. But the verse that he quotes right here it was found in chapter 8, verse 10. If you want to look at it there. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You see, this, this is used to support the promised new covenant. Back in chapter 8, he was saying there's a new covenant coming, and it's built on better promises than the old. Why are they better promises? No longer will you have to go and write God's law on tablets of stone. No longer do you have to write them across your foreheads on your do- doorposts to try to remind yourself to obey. Oh, that's right, i got to obey God's law. No longer do you have to put them on mountains and climb up the mountain to read, to remember. He said, instead, it's going to be in your heart. It's going to be in your mind. How is it going to be there? Through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Here's the wonderful thing. You can't do it on your own. You won't do it on your own. Christ does it through you. Christ did it through you. I heard a wonderful testimony from your lips yesterday to your sister who was saying, I don't know if I could even share my testimony for the baptism. I'm so scared. And Freya says, you won't share your testimony, but the Holy Spirit will. And that is true. You see, we have power from within. You are right. Maybe you're thinking, I hear all about the Christian life and it just seems so hard. I can never do it. And I would say, you're right. You can't. I can never do it. I don't do it. Christ does it through me. We're new creations in Christ. And as new creations, you know what we have? We have entirely new desires. We just don't live for the things of the world. And that's not just because I've, I've come to some, you know, mindset of like, I now understand the meaning of life. It's the Holy Spirit. He's changed everything. That was a wonderful illustration that after the armistice of World War I, a preacher was walking um, outside of one of the devastated villages, and he, he noticed that the tree leaves were falling, but it was the middle of spring, and they were just, the leaves were just crumbling before him, and he looked up confused because they had survived the, the winds of autumn. They had survived the frosts of winter, and here there was not a stitch of wind, and these leaves were falling below, and he was trying to figure out. He looked at that tree, and he noticed sap was running, and then he, he thought about it. He said, oh, that's right. There's something unseen taking place in this tree. From deep within the ground, nutrients are coming up through the roots and into the trunk of the tree and through the branches and out into the twigs, pushing off the deadness. And the preacher said this, this is the expulsive power of a new affection. That's what the Holy Spirit does in you. It's the expulsive power of a new affection. It's something that comes in and gives you brand new desires and it just starts shaving off all the deadness from you. You have empowerment to live with the same purpose as Jesus did when he said, I have come to do your will, O God. You have the empowerment to live the Christian life. And finally, the third thing, you have forgiveness, real forgiveness. Look at verses 17 and 18. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of sin, or remission of these, there is no longer 
an offering for sin. That's the final testimony from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit testifies to these things. Again, Jeremiah 31, writing these verses. And the promise of the scripture is that the new covenant would provide complete forgiveness. God would no longer remember sins. And naturally then, since he no longer remembers sins, there's no need for any further offering for sin. See, the new covenant was not really new at all, was it? But it was the fulfillment of the old. This really poses a huge problem for the Jewish, Jewish uh, audience that the author is writing to, but also for the Orthodox Jews today. They were celebrating the red heifers arriving in, in Israel, and it's, it's, it's just so disturbing to see that they're excited about the shadow. The shadow has come when the reality is already here in Christ. You see, they have the Old Testament. They believe the Old Testament, but the Holy Spirit has just given us Jeremiah You cannot accept the teaching of Jeremiah and reject Christ. You can't. And you can't reject Christ. Oh, to uh, to reject Christ is to uh, reject Jeremiah and the Holy Spirit of what he's shown us today. See, the Jews were in danger um, here in, in leaving the reality, leaving Jesus in favor of the shadow. I think it's worse today. I think people who reject Christ today don't even go to the shadow. They just go to nothing. They embrace nothing. Can I just ask what, if you don't, receive what Christ has done for you, what is it you're going for? Christ came from heaven declaring, I've come to do your will, O God. Simple man's incapable of doing it. And he died on that cross and he rose from the dead so that you and I could know complete forgiveness of sins. We have a a renewed spirit, revived life in us. We live for purpose. In in essence, heaven has been laid open at your feet. it's It's for all of us. Will you really turn from him, from this incredible offer? And if you do, where do you go? I'm reminded of the words of Jesus' disciples. Many of his followers were leaving, and Jesus said to his 12, well, do you want to leave too? I mean, do you want to go? They're all going. Do you want to go? And it was Peter that said, well, to whom will we go? It's you that has the words of eternal life. My challenge to you is to, listen, where are you going? Where are you going? If you haven't accepted Christ yet, where is it that you are going to? Because there is no hope beyond Christ. He's opened the gates of heaven to all of us. He's offered one time the sacrifice for sins, and you will know them no more because God knows them no more. And within you, you will have the Holy Spirit empowering you to live a life that's glorifying to him. Receive him today. I'll be up here to pray with anybody. They would like to do that. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word today. We thank you for this amazing chapter that explains to us so clearly, so perfectly from the Holy Spirit what Christ has done for us. We no longer need to go through some sort of ritual, uh, some sort of uh, practice. We don't have to have any kind of mantra. We don't have to count rosary beads. We don't have to do things to receive you. We just simply accept your offer, your free gift, to believe the fact that you died on that cross all those years ago so that I today would know true forgiveness and that one day I'll inherit eternal life with you. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today that has not made that decision, that you would remove the restraints from them today that hold them back from that. The fear the doubts, the guilt of sins past 
all those things, Lord, you will remove that they might accept you, your gracious offer of forgiveness and a full and complete salvation today. We love you. We praise you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you could stand and sing with us, we'll sing a closing song.